Welcome everyone. Uh, I'm Jamie Nemsis, Director of Waddle Partners, and you have joined the third series of our Market Thinkers podcast. This series is dedicated to the concept that is close to all of our hearts, retirement, and specifically how people should frame decisions to exec execute a successful reti retirement. As most of you know, Drew and I own Waddle Partners, a wealth management firm with a really long history. Um, and uh, the majority of our clients are retirees. Today, as usual, I'm joined by my business partner, Drew Meredith. Top of the morning, Drew. Jamie, nice shirt. <laughs> and our special guest today is Bill Mitchell. Welcome, Bill. Hello, how are you going? Okay, to this session, uh, a bit of a change of pace for us, um, but we, one of the things that we see is the biggest obstacle to retirees um, of a successful retirement is managing white noise. Now, we, we touched on this in the last episode where we, we said white noise has never been bigger and it's incredibly hard to stick to your strategy and your framework through a long period of time because of this white noise. I started my wealth management career 25 years ago, getting old, 25 years ago. And the biggest topic when I first started was this noise around um, the wall of debt or what happens, governments are printing too much money. Uh, what happens when sovereigns fail? What happens to markets? You need to go to cash. You need to protect your assets. And they, the doomsday is always sing the loudest. So today we've, we thought um, we would uh, get Bill um, to join us on this podcast to talk about something that he is the father of or the founder of this concept called MMT, Modern Monetary Theory. And we would go through some of that, uh, that concept of a wall of doubt and what does it mean. Um, really excited to have you on this podcast, Bill. Uh, Drew, can you introduce more formally Bill and, and the topic? Thanks, Jamie. Uh, I think, yeah, what you ended there is probably the one I've been most excited for so far. Uh, I think I was weeding my veggie patch sometime during the lockdown last year and started listening to the deficit myth, which I know you didn't you didn't write it, Bill, but uh, it's kind of a, it talks about the the role of MMT in the economy and it, and how poorly understood and misrepresented parts of the uh, of the concept are. Um, but ultimately, the way we see it is, and the way Bill described it, it just explains how the economy works. Um, and I think one of the most important things for retirement is going to be what the economy, the world economy, does over the next 30 years. If we're entering it, if we're at a depression at some point, like people like to predict, your retirement will be a lot different than if we're in a, you know, a booming growth environment. So, um, as Jamie said, like most people, we were trying to work out why what everyone was saying about debt, deficits, money printing hadn't resulted in hyperinflation, hadn't resulted in all these things people were warnings about for 15, 20 years. Uh, that led us to reading some of Bill's work and and happy to welcome him today. Um, and maybe just Thank give you. us a bit of background into your uh, your history. You're giving us some, some long history as in reading books in a library, but... Uh, where did you study? Did you study under classical economic economists, economists as well? Well, I started my studies at Monash University. Uh, it was really, it was really the beginning of what we now in economics call them the monetarist takeover of the academy. Uh, I later then went to Deakin University for a while, 
And then I went to Melbourne University. And then I went back to Monash University. <laughs> then I went to Manchester University. And uh, I finally uh, got a PhD in economics. So my academic career uh, spanned the beginnings of the monetarist era, which is really the modern era in macroeconomics, the sort of stuff that Jamie says introduced as being the, the paranoia about government deficits and government debt. And so I've my academic career has, has uh, followed the path of all of that stuff, the evolution of monetarism into real business cycle theory and then into what we now call new Keynesian economics, and uh, which has nothing to do with Keynesian economics. And uh, so essentially... I started off just at the beginning of this era as a, as a student and, as, and then became an academic. And uh, I've always been uh, uh, taken a contraposition. I feel like MMT is kind of constantly misrepresented or misunderstood by a lot of people. Can you, I said in my original notes, an elevator pitch, but I don't think that's the best term for it. Is, is there like a reasonably short summation of We'll go through in more detail, but um, in the concept in general, look, I think I think most of us have been conditioned by the uh, introduction of finance reports on ABC News, by the uh, the the plethora of uh, commentary now on financial markets and uh, and money and all of that. I think we've all been conditioned to except what I call a fictional world. Uh, the mainstream of my profession basically has developed a fictional world. Now, you can go back in the literature and you'll find that some of the doyens of mainstream economics, and I'm thinking here of Paul Samuelson, the American economist, hmm. and he admitted uh, at one stage that it wasn't in the interests of government for the citizens to know the true capacities of government and the, the way the system actually operates. It was, it was really in the interests of, uh, of political stability for the people to be in the dark about what was, and, and to believe that the government could run out of money. Because if they, if they started understanding the true nature of the system, then they would make, according to him, uh, unsustainable political demands on the politicians. And of course, that would become inconvenient because the politicians would then have to own up to the fact that they didn't actually want to do certain things and they wanted to do other things. And I think that's a, that's a real eye-opener that uh, my profession uh, maintains this fictional world. And, you know, at the most elementary level, we've been conditioned to believe that our experiences as households, managing our budgets and uh, trying to make ends meet and not max out our credit card and, you know, wondering when the next buck's coming in to make sure we can pay our mortgage or our credit card and send our school kids. School fees. School yeah. fees. Yeah, the ones that drive me crazy. Well, I've, I'm, a, I'm a believer in uh, public education, so... Uh, less school it's fees. Mine now. <laughs> less school fees. But all of that stuff that we toy with every day, uh, and, and we understand intrinsically that if uh, 
if we want to spend and uh, have a reasonable material life, we've got to go to work or we've got to run down prior savings or we've got to sell an asset on eBay or we've got to borrow if we need something big like a house. And so we have been conditioned by the, by the economics profession to translate that experience of understanding very clearly what a financial constraint is on spending, we've been conditioned to believe that that also applies to, say, the Australian government. And so then we extrapolate all of our understanding, gosh, if we have too much debt, we're in trouble, we won't be able to pay it back, we'll go broke. Uh, if we spend too much, there'll be trouble. And uh, and the, the reality is, of course, that we, our experiences of, as households provides us with absolutely zero knowledge on uh, to understand what the government can do, what the currency issuing government like the Australian government can do. The Australian government can never run out of money. Now, that's not to say that it, that it doesn't have constraints on its spending, which we can come to, but it certainly can, like us, we have financial constraints. The Australian government never has that. So it can always meet its liabilities in Australian dollars because it issues the currency. And, and it's as stupid as saying, we're, in, we're, we're mostly in Victoria today, I guess. So uh, it's as stupid as saying that the, the umpire blows the whistle two minutes into the third quarter of a football game uh, because the scoreboard's run out of points. That's how stupid it is saying, you know, scoreboards can make as many points as it likes. Is, is there kind of the idea that you don't have to tax to everyone has this concept that you have to pay, that the government needs your tax to pay the bills, which almost, you know, deifies billionaires because they pay the most tax. It's kind of breaking that relationship, isn't it? Yeah, I think once you understand that the Australian government has no financial constraint, then you've got some additional questions to ask. Well, why, why would they tax us? Because we've been also conditioned to believe that our taxes actually are required before the government can spend. Well, that's not true at all. The way the federal government spends is the Treasury instructs Department of Finance in Canberra to instruct its central bank, the Reserve Bank in Sydney, to tick-tock into some keyboards, some numbers into bank accounts. Mm. And that's spending. It's gone. It's, it's done. Yep. You don't need to, the government doesn't need to raise its own currency. It issues its currency. And so you ask a whole lot of new questions once you start thinking in this way. Well, why do, what's the purpose of taxation? If it's not to raise money, what's, what does it do? And why do they keep issuing uh, treasury bonds, debt? If they don't need to uh, finance their spending, why do they borrow money from us? And so these additional questions then lead you further, further away from the mainstream thinking into a much clearer understanding of what's a, what's a proper constraint on spending, what's a political constraint, because the way in which we've been conditioned is that all of those things have been melded into one. We don't understand the separation, so we don't know when the politicians are saying to us something that's just purely ideological, that they just don't want to do something, as opposed to something that has true economic significance. Do you think they understand? Do you uh, think the politicians understand? Yeah, certainly some of them understand. I think the politicians 
in general as a class don't understand. I think that because remember they're just really good, good looking or well dressed, well dressed mouthpieces. Uh, their advisors are the ones that feed them the scripts, and uh, the advisors some of them understand, some of them don't. Mm. But certainly the main operators in the say the Reserve Bank of Australia. Sure. Uh, they certainly understand, and the main operators in Treasury certainly understand. Did any of them study under you, Bill? Well, I, uh, <laughs> I know there's some people at the RBA, aren't there? I don't know whether they want to know this, but uh, <laughs> the, the Deputy Governor of the RBA certainly was, I supervised his honours thesis, so I, I was a teacher for him, Guy. He was a wonderful student and a really smart guy. And I've taught lots of people over the years who have worked in Treasury, Finance, State and Federal, Reserve Bank. Yep. So the kind of hyperbole about um, the debt ceiling in the US is probably what you're talking about here. It's almost a, you know, politicians have created the debt ceiling effectively rather than it's not an actual restriction on how much debt they can issue. Well, I mean, I think they've got too much time on their hands and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, they're like it's like a pantomime. It just keep you know it keeps coming up every three or five years or something. Yep. Look, it, the the thing to understand is that politicians can introduce legislative and regulative frameworks that have legal legal standing that restrict what they can do. So if I if I wanted to. Uh, restrict I went for my normal run this morning well I could tie myself to the bed and that would stop me going to the run but it's but it's a totally voluntary thing you know you could the government could introduce a rule that it has to do 50 push-ups before the treasurer has to do 50 push-ups and I'd like to see that but yep. uh, uh before before the government could spend a dollar well that that would be a restriction of course yep. and so the debt ceiling is a legal restriction it's a, an act of a congressional act, uh, act, which requires congressional approval to change. But so, in that sense, it's a constraint. But it's like a pantomime. It's just a charade. It's a, uh, there's nothing intrinsic about the U.S. government that stops it spending, if unless it puts these ridiculous constraints on. It's kind of you've probably seen it here up until last year, where there was without being on either side talking about increase in the new start allowance couldn't be afforded. But then all of a sudden we threw $80 billion or $100 billion in stimulus in a matter of three weeks, which was clearly needed. Um, and as you're saying, things can get done and laws can be changed when they need to be. So how, how should we think about it, Bill? If we're saying governments, um, you shouldn't think about it as a household budget and you know, politically, People have told us deficits are bad, surpluses are good. Um, generally, uh, government debt is bad. We should pay that back. And if it's too too much debt, then potentially there's a collapse. How, sh how should it work? How should us as advisors and our clients think about this? And what well, should the objective be almost? Yeah, I mean, you've got to, the first, that's, the, that's the quick point I would have started with. What's the, what's We're getting the, there. <laughs> what's the objective of fiscal policy? So government's fiscal policy is government spending and taxing. What, what's the purpose of that? It's not to run a 2% deficit or a 3% surplus or a 5% deficit. Mm. They're just numbers that have no meaning in themselves. So when, you know, is, is a 10% of GDP deficit worse than a 2%? 
all depends. It depends upon the context. So we've got to define the context. Yep. And, and, you know, in general, we don't want the government to do very much for us because they, they, they lock us down and do all sorts of things. <laughs> I'm pro-lockdown, by the way. But, uh, uh, but, we, but there are things that governments can do for us as our agent that we can't do on our own. And that's to produce good health systems, good education systems, good transport systems, uh, be able to provide uh, security for, in society and, you know, law, police systems and lots of different things like that. And so the way we evaluate what the government should be doing is on the functions that the spending is and the taxing is allowing to be facilitated. And, you know, one of the, one of the things we know is that gov uh, private spending, non-government spending, our spending fluctuates mm. according to our uh, assessment of our confidence or our pessimism, whichever way you want to look at it, and it fluctuates up and down. Now, what the basic rule of macroeconomics is spending equals output because firms only produce when they're spending and generating sales, and they only employ when there are adequate sales to generate their expected profit. So if our, pro if our spending, particularly business investment, is quite, is, is quite uh, uh, vulnerable to swings in optimism and pessimism, and what that means is there's these non-government spending cycles, which are quite regular in our history. Well, then sales are going to fluctuate. If there's no other spending in the economy, sales are going to fluctuate. Mm. And so would employment. And so we'd, mm. have, we'd have these big swings in unemployment and prosperity. <clears throat> and so we learned during the Great Depression in the 1930s that that wasn't a very sensible way of society being organised, to have these huge pools of unemployment and then we had booms and busts all the time. Yes. And, and what we learned was that the, 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 the solution to that was that the government could stand ready always to attenuate this non-government spending swings. So when, when we become pessimistic and stop consuming as much or businesses spend. stop investing, Government spend more into the economy and then they spend less later on. And so the, 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 the whole purpose of fiscal policy in that sense was to maintain spending at a sufficient level to mean that we had stability of employment and we didn't have very much unemployment because the greatest economic waste is unemployment. The daily losses of people being unemployed in terms of just dollar losses, forget all the Yep. that go with unemployment like depression and all sure. family breakup and all that which is massive yep. just in bean counter territory the daily losses of unemployment are millions and, and that's income to people that's uh, spending in the economy that's sales that's profits that's uh, earnings going up for uh, fixed income people like you represent uh, and all the rest of it so that's how we appraise fiscal policy, not whether it's a 2% deficit. Now, how does that translate into some number? Well, normally the non-government sector wants to save some of their income, mm. which means that each period as income's generated, not all of that income that is going to be recycled back into spending. 
that's the fact. And we mm. want to, so, because we want to save some and build our wealth portfolios and for our future, for our, mm. for our retirements, the sort of things that you guys represent. Mm. And so if we're, if the non-government sector is wanting to save a little bit each period, well, then there really has to be a fiscal, a government deficit, continuous government deficit to fill that gap to allow us to save without national income falling because of lack of private spending. And so on, normally a government would be running a, a relatively small continuous deficit, which would fluctuate it up and down. Now, if you're Norway, for example, mm. and you have a lot of external revenue coming in because of its North Sea resource wealth, the gas and the oil, well, the external sector is, is flooding, not flooding, that's a bad word, uh, injecting a lot of uh, demand for goods and services in the Norwegian economy from, the, from outside the economy. Yep. And in that case, the government can run a small surplus because if it didn't run a surplus, it would, it, there'd be too much spending in the economy. So the government surplus has to take some net money out of the economy. But that's an exception. Most countries run external deficits, which means that the, def uh, the government has to run small deficits continuously. Mm -hmm. And that's the way we should be thinking. Uh, uh, that if, if, if we observe that non-government spending is falling, like during the pandemic, well, then we had to have larger defi fiscal deficits. There's no question. Otherwise, the economy would have collapsed. Now, think about the next part of the story. The, the when in terms of government debt, you, you, you raise this sort of scare issue about government debt. Well, what is government debt? Who buys government debt? Well, government debt is just uh, is bought by us, mm. mainly through institutions, but, mm. but it, it represents our wealth portfolios. Sure. So it's a risk for in Australian context, government debt is a risk free asset that allows us to balance our wealth portfolios to, to at some risk level that we deem to be appropriate because we know that at that end of the portfolio, it's risk-free, we'll always get paid back and uh, without question. And uh, it, it allows uh, financial markets to uh, benchmark their other riskier products off that risk-free benchmark. And so when you, when, Peter Costello, for example, came out in the, you know, he 10, 10 out of 11 years of surpluses, and he was saying, we're getting the debt monkey off our backs, mm. the public debt monkey. He used to say that all the time. Well, then... What bond he, market dried up, didn't it? The bond market just disappeared. Yeah, the bond market, that's a, that's a good story. We can come back to that if you like. But, yeah, to, by the end of the century, the bond market had disappeared. But what he was really, what he should have been saying if he was being honest was that it's destroying our wealth because... That wouldn't our, reply politically, though. <laughs> yeah, because government bonds are our wealth. Mm. And if they're running surpluses, it means they're squeezing our liquidity. Mm. Uh, and, the only, and because we don't issue currency, and so surpluses are spending less than taxes, mm. well, where do we get the money to make up that our deficit then? We've got to keep paying the taxes and they're not spending enough money into, uh, mm. into the economy. Where do we get that from? The only way we can get that is to run down our previously built up wealth. 
So when he was squeezing the economy really hard during that era and uh, taking more out than he was putting in, we were being forced to liquidate liquidate our wealth to pay that. So the way I the way I think about it as a as an economist and a way if I was a wealth holder, the way I would think about it was that gosh, deficits are actually good because they're keeping national income growing and allowing us to save, giving us the room to save uh, because they, they're maintaining income growth and income growth is the only way private sectors can save. And it's allowing us to save. And what's savings? It's an accumulation of uh, wealth and it's giving us much more flexibility in our portfolio choices into, because we've got more wealth. And uh, if they offer us a risk-free asset, well, gosh, that allows us to balance our portfolios. So that's the way I think about these things. And I think that that's exactly the opposite to the way we've been conditioned to think. And I think a lot of people in your sector have, uh, who haven't really understood all of this and have just bought the, the fictional world yep, have yep. made at times catastrophic investment decisions. Sorry, yeah, I was going to say if if so, what you know, if you look at Europe uh, coming out of the the GFC, they had massive issues and had an austerity budget. Would the outcome have been different? I mean, there's probably some political issues in there in terms of the EU, but you know they were capping deficits, weren't they? And they were restricting the amount of spending within the economy. Well, yeah, they were. But the 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 the, the important point to understand is that the. 19 member states of the Economic and Monetary Union, in other words, the Eurozone that used the common currency, they, in 2000, they surrendered their, each of those nations, well, Greece came in a little bit later, as did Slovakia and that, but the, the 19 member states uh, surrendered their own currencies. They're not like Australia. Australia issues its own currency, like most countries. The 19 member states actually use a foreign currency, the euro is foreign to them, which means that they are much more like a household than, than they were. Uh, and so by surrendering their own currency capacity, they become, how does, how does the French government get, get euros? It doesn't issue them. How does it get them? That has to tax. And if it wants to spend more than tax, it has to borrow from the bond markets. And so the, the Eurozone, by, because they created that architecture, created a nightmare for themselves where the governments really can't defend the economies against major shocks like the global financial crisis because they don't issue their own currency. So, they, so then they are at the, best, at the behest of the bond markets if they want to run deficits. Mm. And of course, and, and any debt that those countries issue is not like debt that the Australian government issues, which is risk-free. The debt that the Eurozone countries issue is, has credit risk mm. because they can't always guarantee to pay it sure. because they don't issue the currency. The Australian government can always pay treasury bonds back because it can just, it types numbers into bank accounts. I think in Jamie had, oh, I'll blame it on Jamie, had magic money tree, as in instead of no, NFT in the notes. Hey. Um, so what's the, I mean, the natural questions are, 
what stops you? You know, the U. I sent you an article the other night that said the U.S. G, U.S. debt to GDP was at 300, France is at 370, never been higher before. What's the constraint on debt issuance? Is it, uh, and people naturally go to inflation. Maybe it's a two-part question. <laughs> so, so if we keep this really simple, right? We're saying fiscal policy is about stability, um, and and long-term stability for an economy, and then we, we, we then we the government must either take or give um, with, to create that stability, which essentially essentially means we, we don't necessarily have to have balanced budgets. We can have deficit budgets um, to make sure prosperity within our economy and stability stays. Then it gets to a point, and same point as yours, Drew, how much is too much? If we have five times GDP as debt, is that too much? Is there a point where it becomes too one way? And, and is that... What, what what creates this kind of debt wall and concerns? Um, is GDP even relevant? It's probably the other one too. Yeah, is it relevant? Is, is it or does it does it not matter? It doesn't matter. But uh, let's let's work out why. So first of all, focusing on debt is not to, is something I wouldn't focus on. That just that gives you anxiety. Yep. Uh, irrational anxiety because there's yep. no there's no reason to be anxious about it. So take two scenarios. So, so the, the thing to understand is, and I said it at the beginning, there are constraints on government spending. So what are they? So mm-hmm. take two scenarios. The scenario is that you're the Australian government, you issue your own currency, you spend by typing numbers into bank accounts, mm-hmm. you've got unlimited amount of spending capacity, you can type as big a number as you like mm-hmm. uh, at any time you like, you can buy whatever's available for sale in the Australian dollars whenever you mm. want. So uh, uh, what, con- what constrains that sort of government? We'll take two scenarios. Australian government, and we've got a very rare situation in our modern history of full employment. And that means that everybody who wants to work is working, that all the c- capital that the business firms have built up, the infrastructure is working at, at capacity, yep. and uh, the government then gets a mandate to introduce a green transition, which means it's got to it's got to have a fundamental increase in its spending, uh, uh, decarbonise, invest in recycle in uh, renewables, all of that stuff. Okay, so how does it go about doing that? Well, it can go into the market where all the resources are employed. And it can say, okay, we've got to get extra labour, extra capital, all of that stuff, and we'll start bidding for that at market prices. So, in other words, it just puts up, uh, puts in advertisers for new workers, and it pays them above their going wage. And of course, the market will deliver more workers and and resources into the public sector, and away from the private sector in their current uses. But if it does that, it will cause inflation. So you immediately see what the constraint is. If you want to be responsible in your spending, you don't really want to be competing at market prices for already productively employed resources. Mm. Uh, you, uh, otherwise, you'll cause inflation, and that's 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 an issue. So there's yep. there's the constraint. Got so it. in that context, what does the government have to do if it's if it really has this political agenda? which we all want it to do, Mm. then what it has to do is deprive the existing users of those resources of that use. 
In other words, it's got to create some idle resources. Mm. Now, how does it do that? It can do that through regulation. It could just say to, to the Hunter Valley coal industry, it's regulated out of existence. Make all of the workers up in Napa Hunter uh, Valley in, in New South Wales, make them all unemployed. It could mm. do that. But in general, we don't operate like that in Australia. We do have some dictates like that, but in general, we don't. Yep. So what it does, what it typically will do is by deprive us of purchasing power. How does it do that? Through taxation. Yep. Taxation yep. reduces, we pay taxes, that reduces our ability to buy things. It reduces our disposable income. And if we don't buy things, as I said at the beginning, that creates idle resources. And that, that, that then allows the government to spend into that space, bring those idle resources back into productive use. And so the role of taxation in that context isn't to fund the spending. It's to create the resource space to overcome that resource constraint, which otherwise the spending would create inflation. Now, take scenario two, where pretty much now we've got uh, mass unemployment, underemployment, lots of idle resources. And what's the role of government then? Because obviously non-government spending isn't sufficient to use all of those resources productively to generate income and prosperity. Well, as I said before, the role of government spending then is to bring those resources into productive use. What's the constraint in that context? No financial constraint because it's issues of currency and there are no, <coughs> excuse me, real resource constraints because there's lots of resources that have no market bid for them. That's they're, they're unemployed. By definition, they have no bid. And so they're, they're, by bringing those resources back into productive use, either directly in the public sector or by stimulating private sector spending via cutting taxes or incentives to invest and all those things, the government brings those resources back into productive use, either in the public or private sector, generates rising income, no constraints until you get back up to that scenario one, full employment again. Then you start getting inflationary pressures from demand pressure, and that's the point at which governments should stop running should stop increasing their deficits. So at that point, you're likely, because private sector wants to save some, you're likely to have small deficits, which is really our history. And this, and, and it's really important, I think, to understand that the, the period in which Australia ran national government surpluses, which we think of now as being the norm, it's held out as the benchmark to go back to, Yes. was actually a, a, a very atypical period in our history. It was an unsustainable period because the only way the governments could run those surpluses and squeeze our liquidity, how did we keep spending? How did consumption, household consumption spending keep growing? Well, because household debt went from 65% of disposable income to 180%. That was the credit card boom. Yes. And that was unsustainable, as the GFC taught us. We, households can't keep running up debt. Now, could the government ever, ever get to a point? So why does it issue debt? Well, it doesn't have to issue debt anymore. 
uh, a fundamental shift occurred in 1971 when we went to this modern era of money. And uh, I can talk about that if you want me to, but uh, uh, the, the federal government doesn't really have to issue debt to spend. That's just a hangover from a previous system of monetary organisation. But if yep. it does issue debt, it's our wealth and there's no problem with it. The, and, and surely the more wealth we've got, the better. And so the government can always meet those debt obligations whenever it wants. There's never a problem. It's not a thing we should ever focus on because it'll lead us away from focusing on the things that matter. And that is things that generate prosperity like employment, income growth, sales, investment, all those things. And, and the natural questions always go to Zimbabwe and Weimar. You know, hyper, there's actually one come up from Graham, I think. Uh, hey, Graham. Um, Good on you, you know, Graham. What's, that's, he didn't say either of those. I, I had the two, you know, examples in there, but hyperinflation. Um, and you kind of part explained it, but could you put into context maybe with, uh, I mean... Yeah. Why my well, republic is for it. There's key reasons behind each, I guess. Yeah. I mean, go back to scenario. I'll come back to Zimbabwe because that's a really interesting case. Go back to scenario one, where you've got full employment and the government's trying to build a bigger public sector. And it's doing it by putting ads in the paper and trying to bid resources into the public sector by paying higher wages. And of course, the private sector doesn't want to surrender their use of resources. Yep. So they start having a bidding war for their skilled labour. Which we're doing at the moment, but with capacity, clearly. With capacity at the moment. But, but at that point, the, in scenario one, you have no capacity. It just becomes a nominal bidding war. And so in, nothing real happens except prices keep going up and wages go up. And if the government kept pursuing that objective, then you would probably get start getting accelerating inflation and it could morph into hyperinflation. If it, but that would be ridiculous. No government would do that. Now, take Zimbabwe. And the same could be said about Germany in the 1920s. All of the major historical episodes that we call hyperinflation, there's no exact definition of hyperinflation. It's just wildly accelerating inflation. All the historical episodes have been driven by supply shocks, not demand shocks. Now, what, what does that, that's jargon. What does that mean? We'll take the example of uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, Robert Mugabe led, led the freedom fighters to free Zimbabwe from Rhodesia, from the white rule. And the period of white colonial rule had led to massive land inequality uh, the whites had all the land and the blacks had none, basically. And Mugabe had two purposes. He wanted to reward his army, who had been courageous in liberating the country. And he also wanted to reduce land inequality. And so both of those things are probably reasonable objectives. But the solution he took was ridiculous. And it was to get, uh, expropriate the white farms and give them to the soldiers. Now, the white farms were the food bowl of Africa. In Rhode the former white farms of Rhodesia, they were incredibly efficient farms. And within six months, farm output collapsed by about 60%. 
because the farmers knew nothing about uh, the, the the soldiers knew nothing about farming. The farmers had been shunted off their land, and and then of course the 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 foreign exchange at the Bank of Zimbabwe, the Central Bank of Zimbabwe, manipulated and held in stock and used to lend to the manufacturers to buy imported capital equipment. They were diverting their their scarce foreign reserve, currency reserves into buying food because the food supply had collapsed and manufacturing then collapsed. Yep. And so the point is that they had a massive output collapse because of supply side contraction. The Zimbabwean government could have been running large government surpluses and you still would have got hyperinflation given the massive imbalance that that supply contraction created relative to spending. So the example of Zimbabwe provides you with zero information about what would be the situation of a government with stable, stable political system running small deficits continuously or running larger deficits when non-government spending falls as, as during the pandemic or the GFC. You're not gonna get hyperinflation ever in those circumstances. You would if we had a massive supply collapse. I've got a question, uh, another question, Bill. And and it's uh, a question around, uh, we, we talked about, or I talked about white noises, and there's an enormous amount of white noise at the moment around China and what is happening um, with Evergrade um, and the property developer. And if it was to go bankrupt, what would happen? Um, I know it's not not exactly the same, but do you have an opinion about that? Or a viewpoint? Well, I have I have an opinion, uh, like everybody probably, um, and the opinion is that the Chinese government is very clever and will never allow something, they would never allow a sort of capitalist... They wouldn't allow it, right? Lehman Brothers moment. And, and I mean, let's, let's, <clears throat> let's be clear. The Western governments mm. national, during the GFC nationalised all the banks that were collapsing Sure. They, they never allowed it either. And uh, during the pandemic, the Western governments put capitalism on state life support systems mm. through large deficits and central banks buying a lot, most of the government debt. They never allowed it either. And so I, I think that I don't, you know, I don't know enough about the extent to which that company in China is linked to all the rest of the world. I'm, I'm led to understand that there are linkages, but it's it's they won't allow it to collapse. Prudent fiscal or government policy will say that they'll they'll fix that, whatever that means. I think, bailout, I think they just understand bailouts. Uh, you, you know, you can't let massive system, systemic events happen anymore. The pain for the for the people is far too high. What 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 the GFC taught us was that mainstream economics is uh, fictional. And the central banks, central banks and treasuries have massive capacity to, to save economies from major fluctuations. And really, they learned that during the Great Depression. Before the Great Depression, you used to have these big swings and booms and busts. They learned, learned it during the 19, Great Depression, they learned that the government could save the world. And they reinforced that again during the GFC and during the pandemic, everybody's seen it. And they know pretty much how to do that now. They know how to get money into economies very quickly. And uh, 
I, I just don't think that uh, we're going to see those major collapses. We'll obviously see firms collapse, but we won't see we won't see collapses that have massive contagion that would mm. kill the whole economy. That Too big to fail, kind of. Won't allow that. Can we learn anything from the experience of Japan? And Japan's always fascinated me over the last twenty years. Um, <clears throat> Well, it's fascinated me for 30 years and it's really <laughs> why I got into how MMT started. Yep. Because uh, it, for, for your listeners who don't know, the, Japan had the largest commercial property real estate collapse in the early 90s. You know, properties uh, values in t central Tokyo fell unbelievable amounts, office buildings and things like that. Mm. And I was... Um, I was just a young academic at that stage. I was just moving into employment and uh, I could, I was really interested of why they had one negative GDP quarter when they'd had the biggest disruption in history almost to, to their economy. And so that got me interested in studying Japan and, you know, I've, got a lot of contacts now in Japanese government and uh, central bank and uh, and and I go there and uh, mm. I've, I've followed it through and the obvious point is Japan has got the largest gross public debt in the world about 250% of GDP you know Australia is about 30% uh, rising uh, Japan has been able to and and all my profession in the 90s and afterwards predicted that Japan deficits above 10% at times, mm. uh, massive public debt, central bank buying uh, significant proportions of uh, Japanese government debt. Since 2012, the Bank of Japan has bought 212% of government debt. Mm. Well, how does it do that? It buys all the new issues plus buying up previous issues that are still out there yep. unmatured yet. And so my profession said that Japan should have hyperinflation, rising interest rates, rising bond yields because bond yep. demand higher yields because deficits would be uh, were large. And as a consequence, eventually the bond markets would bid to cover ratios would drop below one. And eventually the Japanese bond market would refuse to fund the Japanese government. And, mm -hmm. be and that's what my profession predicted. That was in the 80s or? 90s. 90s. <laughs> 90s into the 2000s. In the 80s, they were trying to run surpluses, which is which is the reason they had the commercial property collapse. Yeah. They squeezed the economy too much of liquidity and caused bankruptcies. But but none of the none of the predictions of my profession came true, and and because Japan's had zero interest rates for years, it's you know its 10-year bond yield has been negative recently. Uh, uh, bid to cover ratios are up to four or five regularly. In other words, there's there's huge queues lining up for Japanese government bonds mm. in the bond markets. Yep. There's no shortage of uh, investors wanting to get hold of that uh, that that paper, and they're even prepared to lend for ten years at negative yields. Is one of the reasons, and they've so, so. very low unemployment. <clears throat> so just to finish that point, Japan was my sort of laboratory that I worked out how the system worked 
and how it could be manipulated to work in one way or another way, depending on what your objectives were. And uh, I think Japan has a fairly stable society, uh, low unemployment, quite high levels of material prosperity. Everybody's got a, not a relatively reasonable residence, yep. a good public transit systems, and uh, they look after their citizens. Now, culturally, people would say they might want to live under that system, but it's a, it's a very Either. nice society to live in. It's interesting because really fantastic answer, Bill, because I've been asking that question for at least 15 years to every economist about, tell us about Japan. And most people just write it off and say, well, we can't learn anything from their experience. It's totally different to what we're seeing in the West. Um, so it's the first time someone has actually answered it in a way that is um, that, that helps our thinking. Yeah, One you thing can, You can learn everything from Japan because... You know, my people say, and you just said it in a way, oh, you can't learn anything from Japan because it's a different culture. Yeah. Well, it is a different culture, it's a different language, but the monetary system works in an identical yeah. way. The way the central bank works is identical. The way the treasury works is identical. And yep. uh, they have different spelling of the words. So what? It's, <laughs> it's, the same, it's exactly the same. Same, same, yep. And so you could... If One of the things in Japan, well, you know how this concept is, we look at government, um, the way governments do their budgetary budgeting the same as households, and households always look at their debt, governments look at their debt. The difference is households also look at their wealth, right? Their value of wealth. Now, Japan's a perfect example. They've got a lot of debt, but that Japanese economy stayed number two for pretty much 25 years while they were going through it. It's a very, very powerful economy and a very, very, if you wanted to value it, you know, where, where, where um, equity goes, right? So everything's got a PE. So if you, if you put a PE to it, I mean, debt to equity ratio of the value of the Japanese is ridiculous. You know, the, the, the debt doesn't, doesn't really even coming to any equation but the debt's our the debt is mostly held by japanese interests it's Pension their wealth funds, yeah yeah it's their wealth yeah 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 but, but if you could you know i mean as a visit regular visitor to japan and uh uh you'll appreciate you get on the uh high high speed rail and you from tokyo to kyoto in a, if you know a short time fabulous and uh the trains are beautiful the the, the cities are well kept and uh the public infrastructure, the parks and the schooling system, the health system. I, I never have any fear that I'm going to be sick in Japan because I know that I'll get sure. the very best care. Now, those things are difficult to value in the way you number crunches, you bean counters thing. But but in terms of the value to society yeah. and the, the well-being and the, the, the security that Japanese citizens have, massive value and and it's incomprehensible mm. how, how massive that value is really and bringing this kind of to re retirement we've got a question that's talking about how should you use the mmt lens to you know invest or or create wealth should it change the way we think about portfolios what the future looks like are we all going to be japan um i assume it comes down to whether governments make mistakes or not but is, is there a i know there's no buy this or anything but um yeah. well you, you could start with the assumption drew that economies work in 
and 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 you know fiscal policy works so therefore yeah. the next 30 years is stable where where when we start you know that's kind of the assumption but many of our clients go oh when do we all sell out of equities what happens when there's too much debt what is the white noise so if you're putting a framework and kind of decision tree around how you invest successfully through your whole retirement then the concept of MMT actually helps because it's saying there's there is a consistent and governments are prudent and they will make sure that there's prosperity now that I reckon that's a really big input um, that is important for retirees I think yeah. you just answered for Bill <laughs> I just didn't want him to answer something else and then I have told my clients I've been saying something wrong well, well, as you know, as you both know I, I I'm not I'm not giving investment advice and I think that your disclaimer at the beginning also has that yep. but, but if you go back through history I mean one of the one of the classic terrible trades that have been made by hedge funds is the 10-year bond in Japan. Now, this is called the widow-maker trade <laughs> because uh, people have lost so much money and jumped out of buildings uh, and created widows. But um, the, 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 point, the point is that what did my profession predict and what's the mainstream uh, narrative about the 10-year bond yield? Well, the, the mainstream narrative was that the government debt in Japan had become so high and governments were running such large deficits continuously that eventually the bond markets would uh, start abandoning the demand for the 10-year bond, which would push up yields and drive down prices. And so, so if you believe that, which is the mainstream narrative, well, then it was, it was sensible to try to short the, take a short position on the 10-year bond. Yep. I've seen a lot of people put that in their portfolios too. <laughs> which you'd go into the spot market later on and you'd make money. And, and that, that has a recurring theme in investment history. And, of course, it's never been, it's, it's never been a profitable trade. You can't short the, the Japanese government bonds successfully because the central bank knows that it can always maintain low yields by purchasing in secondary bond markets. And it's always going to do that. It's mm -hmm. never going to allow the yield to go up successfully to allow that short trade to, to be successful. So that, that and, and what MMT teaches you is exactly that. Now, go back to the global financial crisis and, and, and a lot of investment advice was being given by economists that... Uh, the, of a similar sort that oh you shouldn't really go long in government bonds because uh, yields are going to rise because the deficits are too high and the bond markets are going to retaliate blah blah and that on the other hand because the central banks were doing quantitative easing and starting to buy up a lot of government debt that there'd be inflation because that's what the textbooks predict and if there's inflation you want to then divert your investment portfolios into inflation proofing uh, away from uh, away from certain assets into other assets and of course those predictions didn't work either and so so investment funds hedge funds made my uh, forewent profits mm. lost lost profitable opportunities by listening to the mainstream of my profession whereas if you had have listened to me and I had have been prepared to give you investment advice 
I would have said that there's no way bond yields are going to rise. They're going to fall, which mm-hmm. means that you're going to get rising fixed income prices and a long position is a, is a secure position. And that there's no way there was going to be accelerating inflation during the GFC. And so all of the strategies are in it to inflation-proof your portfolio were just a waste of time. And, and so uh, that comes directly from, from MMT understanding. And so I think that once you get over this hysteria about deficits and debt, then you've got a much clearer understanding of the way the monetary system works, the way these financial aggregates are likely to move mm. and or not, and what's likely to happen, what's not. And you're able to cut through all of Jamie's white noise that comes out of the finance reports and the Fin review and all of that stuff. That's just propaganda, all of that. And it's not a sensible basis to invest millions of dollars that you've, you've, you've worked hard to build up to make your lives secure. So what do you really want to keep an eye on is where, where governments are spent, not, not what they're spending, but where they're spending, where their supply, where their capacity is in, in economies and, and what the future looks like. If they're, if they're reducing spending and there is still capacity, you're looking at a weaker economy. That's kind of. Yeah, I think if you if you you know if the way I look at it is if wages growth starts really accelerating, and uh, unemployment and underemployment starts going really low, then then you start thinking about inflation proofing, yeah. because that's 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 the only time you're really going to get a sustained inflation. The, the spikes that we've got at the moment. Uh, uh, you know, what would you expect in a global pandemic with the massive disruption to supply chains, etc.? So you, you were always going to get some temporary disturbance in price levels at the moment, sure. but, but that's not that wouldn't be a reason to to alter your portfolios. Uh, take you know, in a long term decision making environment, I wouldn't be doing that. I that's just going to that's just going to be a blip, and it'll go through. But if, if you start observing, you know, really strong wages growth and, and not, not wages growth per se, because really you've got to also cut, differentiate between, you've got to work out the base at which it's coming from. Yep. And the way, you know, we want wages growth at the moment because it's at historically low levels and it's been suppressed for too long. And, and, and what that means is that there's too much reliant on uh, private credit to continue consumption growth. And we want to swap that balance back from less credit growth and more wages growth to maintain consumption growth. So just seeing some wages growth, which we want now, isn't a reason to start freaking out about inflation. Mm-hmm. Effectively, company profits have been at record levels. And we need, and you know, the wage share in national income has gone what from 60% in 1985 to 49% last year. That's a massive redistribution of national income to profits away from workers. And so we really need to see some reorientation of that balance to get us back to a more sustainable position where households don't rely on credit growth, but can enjoy wages growth and consumption security so that we shouldn't freak out about that. But if wages growth start, starts to really accelerate and unemployment starts to get really low, then we might start inflation-proofing our wealth portfolios. But we're a long way from that. Yep. Well, I think that's a perfect place to to end this podcast. On behalf of 
Drew and I, Waddle Partners, the clients that have listened and will listen to this, really appreciate your time, Bill, as usual. So thanks on behalf of us. Um, we'll share the, there was quite a lot of questions you probably saw, so we'll share those with Bill uh, and see if he can shoot through some answers next week. Well, I might even write, I can write a blog post about them. Famous. <clears throat> ultimately, um, we'll hope to do one of these live at some point, Bill, with, uh, with an audience in six months' time. Um, <clears throat> really enjoy our interactions with you. Thanks for you know, giving up the time and contributing to our podcast. Um, so to, to everyone that's joined us, thank you. Um, we will continue this retirement uh, series uh, next week with metrics talking about income. Last week we talked about, uh, we have kind of a, a view, uh, a really simple one, Bill, that total return equals income plus growth. I mean, it's simple, right? But yeah, everything kind of fits in there. And uh, last week we talked about how important growth is for retiree portfolios. And next week we're going to talk about how important income is and how that can be sustained and, and, and built. So on behalf of all of us, thanks very much. See you, See you later. next week. Thank you.